I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. invite you to be in prayer for Eric and Claire Cooley. Um, Claire's mother fell on Christmas Eve and uh, needed to have surgery, and uh, Eric and Claire are with um, her mother and father this weekend, so kids are here. I don't want to embarrass them, but they did a great job coming to church, uh, and uh, but just uh, be in prayer for them. Uh, they wish that they could be here, but uh, need, need to be there with her and uh, her father. And so just be in prayer for, for them. I wanted to uh, also encourage you to pray for um, the Brannings, uh, Terry and Donna. Uh, Terry's parents uh, were in an accident uh, this week, and uh, Margaret had surgery and seems to have done as well as can be expected with surgery and still some uh, to get through here in the next few uh, few weeks. And so we keep praying. For, we can be praying for, for them as well. And uh, it's a difficult time to have these things come upon us. Never a good time. Uh, but during the holiday season, it's especially demanding upon all of us and our emotions. And so just be in prayer for these couples um, I do want to encourage you as the new year approaches, um, I, I, I'm not going to call it a resolution because sometimes resolutions can create a self-defeating precedent, uh, but I would encourage you to consider reading uh, the Bible with renewed vigor in the new year. And uh, there are different approaches to reading through the scriptures. Um, Robert Murray McShane uh, had a reading pattern that he had set up through the calendar year uh, to get you through the Old and New Testament in one reading in one year. In fact, that's the, in our bulletin, uh, this previous year, that's the, that's the system that we had used. Uh, we each week would, in the bulletin on one of the side panels, there is a little um, guide for verse selections that you could kind of paste yourself throughout the week. And uh, this year, we're going to do something a little bit different, a little bit of a slower pace, that over two years, we will be reading through the Scriptures. But there is a thematic presentation with complement to the church calendar, the traditional church calendar of, of, of anticipating Easter, uh, Christmas, Pentecost, and, thing, and some of those special dates on the Christian calendar. And so, I'd encourage you to consider that as a possible useful tool for yourself. Um, later in the week, when we get our internet back, we will also send out an email where you could subscribe to an online calendar if you have a calendar on your phone and you like to receive, like, in your calendar system, uh, a daily reading that's going to be available for you as well through that site. So, make that available to you. Um, let's, let's, let's pray. And then consider uh, Matthew 4, verse 12 to 25 is our text this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can turn to you when our hearts are heavy, when they're overwhelmed, and we find that you are a constant source of peace for our souls. 
so often when crises come, we, we react instantly to the need to manage everything. And certainly there's responsibility that's involved to, to act. But may our hearts be um, moved to communicate our heart's anxieties to you. Uh, when difficulties come. And in the new year, we will have difficulties. We will have trials that will beset our souls. And I ask, Father, that you would cause our hearts through the Holy Spirit to cry out to you, Abba, Father, and to find uh, comfort in you. Would we cast all of our cares upon you, knowing that you have made us the object of your concern. And so as we look at this text this morning, I ask that you would Um, Give me wisdom to communicate the truths that are here. Help us to think carefully about your kingdom, uh, the value that you place in this dispensation upon your church, and the the value um, and, and the great joy that can be ours of making you the central priority of our thoughts. We pray that you would help us to think clearly about this text now. In your name we pray. Amen. The word fulfill, the word fulfill occurs 16 times in the book of Matthew. That's kind of an important word to Matthew, but it is a word that is often misunderstood in its intention. Most commonly when we think of the word fulfill, we think of someone keeping their promise or carrying out a promise. They've fulfilled their word. They've, they've made good on what they have said that they would do. Now, that word and that understanding of fulfill um, can cause a little bit of misunderstanding when Matthew uses the word fulfill in his gospel. Um, In fact, he uses it multiple times in connection with an Old Testament scripture, and he says, thus it was fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet Isaiah, for example. And so I want us just to kind of note, turn with me back to chapter 1, and I just want to have your eyes catch how many times he does this. And in Matthew 1, verse 21, we read, and she will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He used the word fulfill to state that Isaiah's words had come to pass. Let's drop down to verse chapter 2, verse... Um, 15, 2 verse 15, and uh, I'll start at verse 14 because that's where the sentence really begins, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Drop down to verse 23. In verse Actually, even verse 17, excuse me, verse 17, it says, And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Look down at verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
that he would be called a Nazarene. Drop down to chapter 3. Chapter 3. And um, verse 15. And Jesus is speaking to John the Baptist. And Jesus uses this word too. Let it be so now, for thus it is forfitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be, what is the word? Fulfilled. All right. Drop down to chapter 5 into the Sermon on the Mount and look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill them. Now, I had said that the word fulfill is often used as a way of describing something that has been promised and then carried out. Now, that is certainly part of the idea, but it's not the whole meaning of the word fulfill as uh, Matthew is writing. In fact, the word fulfill means literally to give the true or complete meaning to something. That is to provide the real significance of. And so, what that means is that throughout the Old Testament, as the prophets are writing, there's little shadows, there's hints at a greater intention, a greater reality. And so, you can see in the Old Testament examples and parallels that manifest themselves in Christ. Christ being the true reality that they are intended to point to. And so, it's helpful for us to understand as we see this word pop up because it points to us that Christ is the real thing <laughs> that a human heart longs for. Um, i just give you an example of what I mean by Christ being the real and the Old Testament being a shadow. Throughout the Old Testament, you will read the account of Israel going into captivity, celebrating a Passover, then being taken out of Egypt through an exodus, going through the wilderness wanderings, and then going into the promised land. And as you think about those images, you see little shadows pointing to a greater reality. Because the greatest fulfillment, the true significance of all these things, points to that Christ was the one who was the Passover lamb. He was the one who died, he was buried, he became a resurrection so that all who put their faith in him are carried out of the bondage, the captivity, the slavery of sin. And we are now going through a wilderness as sojourners, anticipating what? The promised land. We are looking forward to the day when we will be with Christ and he will rule and reign on this earth. So these are shadows pointing to the real. And Christ, in every sense, is the real that the Old Testament points to. 
Now, why am I emphasizing this this morning? Because Jesus Christ is what gives real meaning to all that has ever happened, will happen, and is happening right now. And that this is an all-encompassing truth. Jesus gives real meaning, and it's not only to the scriptures themselves as you read them. He gives real meaning to your everyday life. He gives real meaning to 2020. He gives real meaning for everything that we will experience as we are through the wilderness looking for his return. So if Jesus, here's something else that we need to see in this. If Jesus Christ is the one who gives us real meaning to all that has ever happened, is happening, and ever will happen, this is what it means for us as Christians. The pursuit, then, of His kingdom is where real meaning is found. If He is the embodiment of real meaning, then pursuing Him and His kingdom can bring meaning for us in this world as we anticipate His return. I think it would be helpful for us just to pause for a moment and pray together, collectively, the Lord's Prayer. Let's do that together. And I've got it on the screen so we don't mess up because I know there are two versions of it. So let's do the one that's here on the wall, okay? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. To pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is to ask God to bring your mind into the reality of God's absolute role as we anticipate his physical rule. God is in charge of this world. He is absolutely over all that has ever happened, is happening, or will happen. And so that affects the way we live our life. We don't have to live with the anxiety of where our daily bread is going to come from. We can forgive one another because Christ provided the ultimate forgiveness. We can have confidence that as we endure temptation, that there is nothing that will come upon us such as God's own kind hand hasn't allowed and will give us the strength to get through. God's kingdom... God's rule is for us as Christians. Another way of saying that Jesus Christ gives meaning to everything, it's just another way when we pray these words that signals that God gives meaning to us through Jesus Christ. And so the significant point that I want to bring up in this text, and we're going to unpack this text this morning to understand the truthfulness of this statement that, that real meaning 
is found in pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the big idea. And typically, this is a Sunday which we may consider traditionally the wise men, the wise men who brought their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All of these even are little shadows, aren't they? Pointing to the one that they give those gifts to, who is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who rules and reigns. I think much of our Christmas celebrations tend to revolve around gift-giving. And I know that that's a, a nice thing. It's something that we enjoy sharing with our children. Um, and as wonderful as that tradition may be, you know, we can sometimes lose perspective of why we give and we receive those gifts. And, you know, the season can also leave us with, with many of us feeling very empty, almost purposelessness after everything has kind of stopped and we've kind of moved on. Now what? And that empty feeling that we sometimes have after Christmas comes about because we do not um, content, because we've become content living in the shadowlands. We're not really living in the reality that Jesus is Lord over all. And I think that for those of us who, who grow discouraged after Christmas, I want to encourage us that we need to instead be pursuing His kingdom each and every day. We need to focus our hearts longing not on the temporal things that we have in this world, but be focusing our hearts and longings on Christ. That's what gives true meaning. He is the one. And so this text this morning, um, need to get right into it if I can. I want you to see that in verse 12 to 17, we're going to read these verses, and I want us to see that when the truth that's being communicated here is that when we see Christ, we are seeing God's kingdom, His rule, His, His, His righteous rule. Let's read the verses, verse 12 to 17. It says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelled in darkness and have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew here is marking the beginning of Jesus' ministry with the arrest of John the Baptist. That's the signal, the transition. And the arrest of John encourages Jesus to relocate away from Jerusalem where the hotbed of resistance is and, and go north, north up to Galilee. It was where he grew up. It was familiar. Um, it was a next major hub of activity in Palestine. You had Jerusalem, and then you had Galilee around the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, that is. 
And there was a lot of commerce up there. It was the next logical place to create a home base. And very significantly, Matthew looks at this movement of Jesus up into Galilee and says, Look, in a greater way, Jesus gave significance to his movement. The Old Testament spoke of him, spoke of light being available in Galilee. Look at the light of the world going up into Galilee and shining light in a region of darkness. And as you look at this text, you see a quotation from Isaiah. I want to contrast the idea of darkness and light here. And I want us to see that when you see Christ, you see God's kingdom. So when you don't see Christ, you don't see light. What you see is darkness, and that's a characteristic of Satan's kingdom. On the other hand, when you see uh, light, it's a characteristic of God's kingdom. Now, Matthew is quoting Isaiah's prophecy of the great light. He's writing to a people who are in great darkness. You know, I think we could probably see parallels in our day, would we not? We live in a land of great darkness. We look at the newsprint and we say, how can it be the land that once was a cradle of Christianity to be so dark. Well, Isaiah was also writing to a nation that was the, their king was Jehovah. Yes, they had a, a human king, but he was a representative of God himself. And the nation had the law of Moses, and yet they were so dark I want us to keep your finger here. I, I think we need to go back to Isaiah for a few minutes, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse, I'm going to give you time to get there. I don't have it projected on the wall. But Isaiah 1, the opening lines of Isaiah's massive sermon Israel. In chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, 2 through 4, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people does not understand. O oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. This people that was once the holy and privileged nation are, are, are growing up, and they don't know God at all. They have more parallels with the surrounding nations. They're, they're living in, in darkness. Uh, drop down to verse 21 of ch in the same chapter. Verse 21. He says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. 
Your silver has become dross, and your best wine mixed with water. It's basically good for nothing. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. They're only in it for themselves. There's such corruption. You know, I think we could also look in our world and see many similar parallels. Many similar parallels. And Isaiah, as he's preaching to his own people that he loves, he, he's dealing with, through his lifetime, he deals with two kings. He deals with Ahaz. And he also deals with Hezekiah. Ahaz was a faithless king. Hezekiah, on the other hand, showed a glimmer of light. He was a faithful king. But Ahaz was a faithless king. There was no light in him. There was just darkness. And Ahaz was so faithless, so dark, he made alliances with foreign nations, and he tripped over himself to try to demonstrate loyalty to these other nations, so much so that he made a replica of the altar to other gods in those nations and brought those replica altars into the very house of God. And he was creating all kinds of darkness, and it affected the way justice was meted out. It affected the care of the orphan and the widow. There was such corruption. There was no moral influence in the land. It's because darkness and dark hearts produce more darkness. Darkness is an indication of blindness. Now, this week I was reading a, a short history of the evangelical church in Canada, and I was struck by how quickly the mainline churches in Canada, Canada capitulated between the 1920s and the 1960s. And I know I'm talking about Canada because it was something I was reading about, but the storyline is very parallel here in the States. In particular, what was really surprising to me was that even in the 1950s, the United Church of Canada was still hosting a Billy Graham crusade and having altar calls and having people, you know, respond to a gospel message and making a commitment for Christ. But the seeds of darkness had been sown 30 or 40 years prior to that by questioning the integrity of the Word of God, suggesting that it was a compilation of, of man's mythology that was doctored up with moral dressing. And there was denials of the atonement of Christ. There was um, denials of the miracles that are recorded in Scripture. And all these seeds of darkness and unbelief were sown several decades before what would happen in the 1960s. In the 1960s, you think, just a decade after hosting Billy Graham, they started allowing abortion as something that might be allowable. They allowed sexual promiscuity as being somewhat normal human experience that people go through. And even today, they advocate gender and homosexual equality. 
In the last half of the 20th century, it was shocking to me to read that they had lost over 60% of their attendees. At one time, the United Church of Canada had a claim to 45% of the Canadian population as membership. And it was so grievous the change that by the 1980s, when drafting the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, now we have a Bill of Rights similar to that in Canada. It was delayed in its writing. But in the 1980s, Pierre Elliott Trudeau stated that uh, maybe the question as to whether we should include God in this charter or not should be posed to the evangelicals and not the mainline churches. Even a secular, a secular politician recognized how weak the church had come over those years. Now, I, I said, I speak of Canada. I speak of a country that, that I know and I also know here in America that it is not much different. It has not been significantly different. Yes, we've perhaps a little bit delayed in some of the effects. But the seeds, where did they come from? The seeds came from dark hearts. Hats, the only way that we can explain how we get from the Scripture from being without error to the acceptance of abortion and immorality unbelief. And we scratch our head, we look at the newspapers, and we see, well, why are people doing something that's so contrary to what God has shown us? How does that happen? It's because by nature, they're children of darkness. Now, as I was pondering this dilemma, I was looking at Isaiah's words and the promise of light and realizing that when the New Testament was written, there was a, such a contrast. We as believers are now created for good works. We are now His workmanship. The light of the world now is the light that's within us creating good work. I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 4, for example. It's a remarkable little text. And Paul is speaking about how important it is for Christians to be speaking the truth to one another and our neighbors, and not to allow anger to go down upon, you know, the, the, the anger that we're having in our hearts, not to let the sun go down upon it. And the reason he gives is very unique. He says this, don't give opportunity for the devil. You know, when we allow darkness to manifest in our lives, what we are doing is we're allowing the devil a foothold. And dark actions are a product of a dark heart. And that which characterizes Satan's kingdom should have no part with God's kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reflected upon this issue he said, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, as we look around this world and we see a world that is totally off its rocker, we shouldn't be surprised. People don't see Christ as the Son of God. People who don't see Him as the living Son of God will call that which is evil good. 
and that which is good they will call evil. Doesn't mean we have to like it, but we have to recognize that we are not living in a, we are not living in the final kingdom of God. Christ is Lord of all, yes, and he's coming again. And the light of the world was in the world, and the world did not accept him. But we need to recognize, though, that when we see Christ, we can see the reality. He is the one that we follow. And light is a characteristic of God's kingdom. Again, Matthew says, and we shouldn't forget this, looking at um, verse, verse um, 14, that which was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah, that it might be fulfilled. That is, that the real meaning might be given. You know, the vast majority of miracles occurred in Galilee. There were very few miracles that occurred in the darkness of Jerusalem. Of course, the greatest miracle occurred, which was the resurrection. But leading up to it, there were very few miracles that occurred. In fact, 65% of the Gospels, like the written narrative, occurs in Galilee. There was a lot of light going on in Galilee. God's word was preached in its purest form. Jesus preached light to the world. What are the, what are the first recorded words in the Bible? Do you know what they are? In Genesis 1, let there be light. And those words created light. You think about Christ speaking the words of truth like light coming out of him. He's preaching repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 17, verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. That's kind of characteristic. That's the... That's the characteristic of his preaching. That wasn't the full sum of it. That was kind of the characteristic. But where did that message come from? Turn back to Matthew chapter 3 and look at verse 2. Verse 1 and 2, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was picking up the mantle of John the Baptist and preaching the same message. John the Baptist was just picking up the message that was recorded by the prophets of old. Jesus, or God is the light. Come to the light. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah said, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be like white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and you are obedient, that is, if you will repent, then you shall eat at the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, by the mouth of the Lord has this been spoken. And so Jesus is preaching the same message. Come to God. 
Repent of this darkness and come to the light. It's the same message that we as Christians even preach today, to repent and believe the gospel. See, the only difference between an Old Testament prophet and Christ, and it's a significant difference, is proximity to the light. Isaiah was preaching about the light. What was Christ? He was the light. And he's proclaiming. I was um, listening to a testimony this week of someone who heard the light and started to come to the light out of darkness. I was listening to a testimony of Jess Lester. She, um, for many years, wrote for the Sun Tabloid in London. And uh, it is kind of, a, kind of a rubbishy, kind of like a magazine. But uh, she had a vague idea about God from her childhood. She grew up in a Jewish family. And uh, it wasn't her parents who were practicing, but it was her grandparents who were practicing, and they would take her to the synagogue. And she was exposed to God and to the light. And she even went to a Christian school, and so she had a blend of things that maybe created some confusion for her. But she stopped going to the synagogue as she got older, feeling that maybe it was not as relevant for her as she um, had thought that it might be. In fact, uh, she had a friend whose name was Grace, who was about the same age, and she, this girl named Grace, developed a brain hemorrhage as a result of cancer. She came through that first hemorrhage, but then she had a second hemorrhage, and her parents said, we will let, let her go. And that became a very devastating thing for her because she had been told to pray and ask God to deliver her and that maybe somehow she could almost force God's hand into saving her out of the, the hemorrhaging. And so she got very alienated and very distant from God and things got very dark for her as she started to run away from the light. In fact, uh, she began to suffer from her own anger, and she began to develop self-destructive behaviors and real severe mental health issues. And she came to a point where she didn't want to live anymore. And she reached out for her mother for help, and she was in early college, and she reached out to her mother weeping and saying, I I don't want to live anymore. I'm desperate, and I don't know what to do. So she began to get some help, and uh, in the process of her recovery, she, she attended a concert um, by the, the music group called the 1975, and she heard these lyrics in the midst of this concert. She heard these lyrics, I have got a God-shaped hole that is infected, and I'm petrified of being alone. It's pathetic, I know. So she's hearing these lyrics, and it's resonating. Now, it's not a song that ultimately really points to Christ. It actually encourages running from Christ. But the opposite effect began to occur as she was listening to these words. And the chorus says, and if I believe you, will that make it stop? If I told you I need you, is that what you want? And I'm broken and bleeding and begging for help. There's no use singing a song And I'm asking you, Jesus, show yourself. 
Now, she is a suffering girl, was in a place of darkness. A glimmer of light was being shown to her, and she cried out and sang those words, and everyone, she said, must have looked at, like, at me like I was crazy. But that was for her. After that, she started participating in an evangelistic course called Alpha Course, and she trusted Christ. And she found that Christ to be more beautiful than she ever experienced. I'm seriously shortening down her, her testimony. But I'm only sharing this to help you see that a person who is living in darkness, it only takes a little bit of light and that little bit of light can be as bright as a lighthouse to them. And she found Christ to be more beautiful than she had ever imagined. You think about the light of Christ being in Galilee. Boy, when you come to the light and you see that Christ is king, and you see his kingdom as giving real meaning to everything about your life, what do you want to do? You want others to see what you have seen, the light. You want others to hear and to know. And this is where this is text is going. And from here, it goes much quicker in how I talk about this text. But I want us to see in verse 18 to 22, Jesus begins recruiting disciples and asking them to be fishers of men. These disciples had had relationship with Jesus, and they, they had already seen his miracles. And he formally invites them into his, his band. Let's read verse 18. It says, And while walking on the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, with his father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, growing up, I have always heard this text being communicated as, as a call for others to, to get in the boat with Jesus, so to speak, and become fishers of men. And that is certainly a part of the application in fact, my father was called to ministry as a fisherman and was, gave his life. And so this text means much to my father. And I began to look at this text with the realization that as Matthew is writing, he's also saying, look, all that Jesus ever did, he is a true significance of all that has gone before. He's the true one who is mirrored or pointed to in the Old Testament. In fact... This little metaphor of being a fisher of men was something that was prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 16, verse 16, we won't turn there because of our time this morning, but Jeremiah 16, 16 describes how God will bring fishers to call men back into relationship with God. He will also send hunters. Now, he didn't talk to these guys about hunting because they were fishermen. There was no need to press that Old Testament analogy any further. But Jesus began to communicate to them, now is the time. The kingdom is at hand. We need to get more people exposed to the light. 
I need fishers, and you can be my fishers to bring people to the light. I will read the verse, because you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, where did this come from? Well, Jeremiah 16, verse 16, I think it's there on the wall, it says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. And it's anticipating, in the, in the greatest sense, the eventual return of all of Israel to the land. But in this dispensation, we are fishers bringing people to the light. We are, we are evangelists of the light. And so Jesus called his first disciples to be fishers of men. And the reality is, is that when you see the light and you see the real meaning of who Jesus is, you want others to see it too. And so he's, I think there's something for us as we read this. And I hope that when you see Christ, you don't put that little light underneath of a bushel, but you put it on an open hill for others to see and come to the light. Third point here in this text that I want us to see not only is it that when you see Christ, you want others to see Him. When you see Christ, you begin to long for His coming. You begin to long for His coming. Verse 23 and 20 through 25 is the last little passage. And, and behind, behind this, there is the, the prophecies of Isaiah. Leah, wrote, uh, Leah Burns read the Scripture text and didn't your heart kind of move as she was reading the text, longing for the day when there was genuine peace on this earth? Like, there was a description there of, of God being in Christ, the one having true wisdom, having the Spirit, the one who can bring healing, who can bring restoration. And then the other part of what she read talked about the, the lion and the calf being led by a little child. That's coming. And, and the people in Galilee saw the light and they saw glimpses of the future. They saw people being healed. They saw people being um, raised from the dead. And this ought to cause within us as we see the light and we want to tell others about the light, we want the light to come. This is what we are looking at, hopefully, within our hearts. And let's read verse 23. It says, And when he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease, every affliction among people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jer Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. <laughs> the prophetic message is there in the background. He's the mighty one that was prophesied of. He's the one who will overturn the curse of sin and make wrong right. I think we all realize that the wolf does not dwell with the lamb currently. 
that the leopard does not lie down with the young goat, the little child does not lead a calf and a lion, a nursing child certainly doesn't play over top of the hole of a cobra. But the one who raised Lazarus from the dead and with his words said, Lazarus, come forth, is the one who will call each of us into his presence. He will call us. He is coming again. And there's going to be a day in which the knowledge of God will be upon this world as the waters cover the sea. If that's something you long for, wouldn't you even say with the Apostle John, Lord, even so quickly come? He is the light of the world. He came to his own, his own rejected him. But when he comes to us, he shouldn't find rejection if we are truly his own. Instead, we ought to see all of life working itself out because he is on the throne. We ought to be encouraging others to come to the light and longing for that light. I know that not all see God's rule and reign. And so as we pray that God's kingdom would come, what we're doing is we're praying that others would see Christ as we see Christ. And as we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we are doing is we're saying we will order our lives by the light of who you are in your word. And I have to ask, are we ordering our lives around his light? Do we long for his coming? I started this message by thinking about the application of this season, which is an enjoyable season in which we share gifts, and there's nothing wrong with sharing gifts. That's a good and nice and enjoyable thing to participate in. However, some of us fall into gloom at this time of year because we lose sight. We become so anticipatory over temporal things that we lose sight of eternal things. And I want to encourage us to lift our eyes up and see the light and see Jesus. He fills all with true meaning. He is the one that we turn to. I'm going to close this service now, or this preaching time, and I want us to pray again together the Lord's Prayer. Let's stand and let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.